This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. And uh, well, 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 how the tables have turned here today, Jesse. How are you doing? I'm great, Pierre. Yeah, I'm on the other side of the table today. As I was just saying to you, you know, I've uh, been asking the questions for about 65 episodes now. This is only like the second time I've been on the other side of the table being asked questions. So go easy on me today, but really happy to be here with you. All right. I can't make any promises, but uh, nonetheless, very happy to have you here as well. And uh, obviously, I had the pleasure of uh, being a guest at your podcast uh, here, the uh, Betting Startup podcast a while ago, which was uh, also a bit of a nerve-wracking experience, but nonetheless, very fun. And uh, also, it's been just great to get to know you, Jesse, over the last couple of months here, um, as we are starting to, to work together between I Give Me Next and Betting Startup podcast. But, uh, you know, b- without me going too much into detail here, it'd be great to have an introduction of yourself, Jesse. Obviously, you're the podcast host and the founder of Betting Startup Podcast. You've interviewed a ton of startup founders, especially on the North American side. But you yourself have a quite interesting and long background in the industry that hasn't perhaps been talked too much about. So I'd love for you to just kind of do the, do the rundown. You were born, now you are here. What happened in between, Jesse? All right. Well, I'll try and keep this brief so to not put you and the audience to sleep here. Um, the origin story, Pierre, I guess, as it relates to the podcast, probably starts in around 2010. Um, so I'll start it there. Um, that really was the entrance into the industry for me. Um, obviously, it was a much different world 13 years ago uh, with respect to the betting and iGaming industry. Obviously, from a North American perspective, there was nothing going on. Um, but in 2010, like through my own betting journey as a customer, uh, I guess in the early 2000s, like I really perceived there to be a lack of tools to do like basic, you know, analysis on bets and things like that. And the the ecosystem at that time was very immature as far as tools are concerned. So, um, you know, 2010, um, you know, the iPhone had been out for a couple of years, sort of the idea of tech startups was becoming a bit more of like a, a common thing. And, you know, I was at a point in my life around that time where I thought, you know what, there's nobody else out there seemingly building these betting tools. Why not me? Um so I put together a team, um, we raised a little bit of money, I had a plan, a vision, um, and we set out to work and um, we kind of did the cliche tech startup thing where we, you know, got an office, we built an MVP, um, and we were really trying to find product market fit. And I guess just to talk briefly about like what it is we were trying to build, again, like talking about it today here in 2023 with everything going on in the landscape seems almost silly to discuss. But like, again, back then there, there was just a huge gap. and. What we were doing was building very basic uh, bet tracking software for starters. Um, on top of that, we did some pretty cool stuff around sort of like arbitrage detection and, and some stuff like that. But really like our secret sauce at that time was this uh, software that we just called trends software, right? So the whole idea of a trend uh, embedding is, you know, you look at an upcoming, upcoming fixture and sort of look at the conditions of the fixture and the circumstances of the teams in it. And basically a trend, you can look retrospectively. I think we had like, 10 years worth of historical data for the U.S. Sports League. So we basically, you know, cleaned up this very messy uh, pile of data, uh, put a layer of of sort of like a query engine on top of it, and basically allowed people to ask questions about how an upcoming fixture has done retrospectively. Again, this is like 13 years ago. There's a lot of stuff out there now that does this, but then there was nothing. And the cool thing we did, Pierre, was that, um, you know, when people found a trend that they thought was compelling and that the data showed was historically profitable, What we did was we allowed users to actually save a trend, meaning every single day our software would look at the day's fixtures, 
look at the different scenarios for each fixture. And if somebody had a trend saved that was in play for the match, um, essentially we sent out a push alert, which was basically a marketing trigger for that that user to um, go place a bet, right? They get a nice push alert to their phone. It says, you know, this fixture is live tonight. It's historically profitable. One tap CTA, go, you know, click through to your sports book of choice and place the bet. Um, it was really cool stuff. But what I now understand is there was really no market for it at that time. And again, we started with US sports. So um, there was nothing going on here. What ended up happening through a bit of serendipity was our product got discovered by somebody from a company called Optisports, which is now part of the Perform Group, um, which I think is actually Stats Perform now. I've, I've lost sort of the, the progression of that company. But anyways, at one time right. it was Opta and Opta had all of the data rights for, um, uh, for soccer, for football. So they reached out to us and said, hey, guys, we really like what you've done here with this product. It fits nicely with the way we're trying to make football data available to punters in the UK and the markets in which Opta uh, you know, distributes its data. And we did an adapted version of our software for soccer. And that kind of really, I think, sort of propelled us into looking at the UK and Europe and, and working with companies out there, understanding that that, land, you know, that market was far more mature than the non-existent North American market at that time. So sort of set us on a bit of a trajectory. Um, unfortunately, and I do admit, like we also uh, fell victim to being unable to find product market fit uh, with the runway we had with the angel round we had raised. So we also found ourselves in this precarious position where we were essentially out of money. Uh, which is not a great place to be and, and making matters worse. We didn't have any investors really lining up to write us another check to continue to extend the runway. So um, again, through a bit of serendipity, uh, which is sort of a separate story altogether, but we ended up out one night in San Francisco with a couple of guys that were from this company called William Hill. Um, and they were sent over, they were sent over to San Francisco. This is 2012, remember, right? It was like 10 years ago. So they were sent over to San Francisco on a bit of a mission to quote unquote, like find smart people in Silicon Valley and find the next innovation for William Hill. So they were basically sent on a mission from Gibraltar. We were down in San Francisco trying to get meetings with investors. We ended up out drinking with these guys one night. Long story short, Pierre, um, sitting around, you know, having drinks with them, getting along famously. Um, they said to us, Hey guys, um, you know, you're great guys. We, we like what you're doing. Clearly, you know what you're doing in terms of the technical capability and building these things and having a vision and, and being able to sort of execute against that vision. Um, unfortunately, what you have isn't really what we're looking for, but we happen to have this massive backlog of projects and we need some people to help us bring those to market. Can we hire you guys to, to do that? And we said, well, you know, we're not really in that business, but also we're out of money and you're offering us money. So yeah, guess what? We're in. <laughs> and like a week later, we were, uh, my, my co-founders and I were on a plane over to Gibraltar and we spent a week in the William Hill offices uh, on the rock. And um, yeah, basically that sort of was the, the start of an accidental sort of, I don't want to say pivot, but uh, extension of our business into professional services. And basically for the next four years, we ended up building a lot of bespoke product for some of the main operators in the UK and Europe, as well as a lot of the other big brands in the space um, that are sort of serving operators. And, you know, I, I guess through that, we we really, really got a lot of experience and subject matter expertise and domain expertise building betting related products. Um, and we did that for about four or five years. Well, at the same time, sort of using the revenue from the services business has continued to fund organically our product ambitions. And we continuously tried to like iterate on our product and, and find PMF, but like, you know, we had some success, but we never quite like broke through. And eventually, like after four or five years, we, we got a little bit fatigued, um, sort of being mercenaries, you know, guns for hire, if you will, like delivering other people's projects. And this wasn't that fulfilling to be bringing products to market that weren't our own. So long story short on that chapter, Pierre, with my first startup, after about five years of like yeah. really like grinding hard, um, you know, paying our dues, getting the experience, um, you know, building our own reputations, all of that, like we were getting a bit fatigued and through, um, you know, again, a bit of serendipity, we found ourselves 
on a plane to Curacao in the Caribbean in 2015. And we met with uh, our friends at Pinnacle Sports down in, in the Caribbean in 2015. And we actually went down there to pitch them on a strategic partnership that we were excited about. And, you know, as happens, I guess, over the course of that week in Curacao and after several conversations and meetings with Pinnacle, the conversation shifted from, hey, guys, you know, this partnership probably isn't for us. But, hey, while you're here, what do you think about the idea of possibly winding down your own operations and your team basically comes and joins Pinnacle uh, as, um, you know, a product innovation team, um, which, uh, you know, couple months later, we, we signed the deal and uh, our company was acquired by Pinnacle. Uh, I then packed my bags along with my co-founder and we moved from, you know, it was actually like January 2nd. So like literally the middle of winter in Canada, packed our bags and uh, relocated down to the island of Curacao in the Caribbean and uh, spent six years with Pinnacle Sports. Um, so it was really interesting, like to go from sort of the supplier side of, of the ecosystem and then suddenly overnight becoming an operator, right? And spending six years as an operator, uh, myself personally, I was director of product management. So like really pushing forward, um, you know, some modernization within Pinnacle's product delivery. Um, and, you know, Pinnacle at that time um, was really, I think, going through a maturation process whereby, you know, they really needed to accelerate some initiatives. And I think our team um, and, and kind of what our body of work over the four or five years that we were doing it really resonated with them to the point where, yeah, they really wanted us to come in and, and we worked together to to push some initiatives forward. So that was sort of the start of a, another crazy chapter and crazy six-year journey. Uh, but fast forward, Pierre, like, yeah, the last year and a half, um, I've kind of come back out onto my own after six years with Pinnacle. Um, you know, I, I decided the time was right for me to kind of go back out on my own. I was, you know, admittedly feeling the entrepreneurial fire burning in my belly again a little bit. Um, and for the last year and a half, I've been kind of dabbling in different things, uh, Lisa, which is the podcast, which you mentioned. So uh, that's a, a fairly long uh, arc to the origin story. But yeah, those are sort of the, the main chapters of my time in this industry. And yeah, it's suddenly been like 13, 14 years now. So here we are. I love that, Jesse. And obviously, you've had like the true, let's say, entrepreneurial experience here by right? uh, going through this like really gritty experience of building your startup and obviously uh, facing difficulties, uh, difficulty fundraising, and then ending ending it with an uh, with an exit. And obviously, uh, you know, as you have now founded your your uh, podcast, the the Betting Quarter podcast. And by the way, for those who haven't checked out this podcast, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I would urge anyone to uh, to subscribe to it. It's it's fantastic, and it it certainly keeps me up to date of uh, what's happening in the startup landscape uh, in the North American market. Um, so obviously, you've you've interviewed. A, a wide range of startup founders through the podcast is something like 60, 70 episodes, something along those lines at the moment. Um, what have you learned through your journey interviewing startup founders? So I think my answer to this is, is maybe a little bit less about like what I've learned from my guests, but maybe more so around like what I've learned for myself through this so far. Right. Um, again, like, you know, when I started the podcast, I'd just come off of this sort of like six year chapter with Pinnacle. I was on the executive leadership team. I had a remit with like, I don't know, five, six, seven functional teams under me, 80 something people. Like it was a very like manager heavy type role. And again, for me, sort of skewing more towards sort of like the entrepreneur side of the spectrum. Um, I was just finding myself sort of like craving um, the, the, the need to like need to build something and create something, right? So I guess for me, like the podcast was, um, you know, something that I've always wanted to do, but it's always been a very scary thing, right? Like none of us like hearing the sound of our own voice, including me. I had literally zero experience with podcasting, right? Like I'd never even been a guest on a podcast, let alone, you know, started one or, or thought I was qualified to start one. Um, but after I left Pinnacle, like I really felt 
the need to create. I wanted to do something. I wanted to challenge myself. So I guess to your question around like, what have I learned? You know, the idea of starting a podcast was brutally scary, right? Um, but through that discomfort and, and that scariness, like is obviously the, the is, is where growth comes from and putting yourself in a position of discomfort um, and leaning into that discomfort is, is really one of the things I've learned. Like if so, basically if something is in front of me as a possibility and it excites me, but it also scares me, that scariness is actually the cue to lean into it and go for it rather than shy away from it. Right. So it's a bit counterintuitive, but really one of the big learnings for me is just like more so just a reminder that like that is a fundamental truth with anything that I'm looking at or anything I potentially involve myself in is if it's scary uh, and if there's growth opportunity, um, you know, that's something I actually should be running towards rather than away from. So, um, you know, that that's probably the main thing. I guess the other thing I would say, Pierre, is like, you know, it's, it's one thing to sit there and ask the questions, but one thing I maybe didn't appreciate at the start that I definitely appreciate now is that there's an art to asking questions and it's really given me like a whole new respect for professional bod broadcasters, media personalities, other podcasters, people that are basically asking questions for a living. It's not as easy or as obvious as it sounds. And the ability to drive a conversation through asking questions um, definitely is something that I, I think I probably took for granted a little bit when I started it. And, you know, I've been a bit of a student uh, of the game here, uh, learning as I go and getting better at it. I got a lot of work to do still, yeah. but um, you know how it is, right? Uh, I, I think that's the biggest learning yeah, so fantastic. far. Is like, I really, I really undersold myself on how difficult it actually was and how much work is actually required to do it well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great answer, I think. And, you know, if there is such a thing as a purpose in life, I think it is to find yourself with one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown, right? So um, if something is too easy, it gets boring. If something is too hard, you stop, right? You're not able to, to continue. But when you have one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown, that's where the magic happens. That's where you kind of find purpose. And uh, so, so to your point here, I'm kind of like diving headfirst into something new and difficult. Uh, I think this is very much uh, the purpose that we have in life is to find yourself in those situations. And when you uh, when you then start you, you start the podcast and you realize that this is something that you can master. Uh, I mean, you are doing like incredibly well as a, a podcast host. Um, then the the motivation that comes from that to continue to do difficult things, uh, of course, uh, it's uh, it's great as well. Uh, is that something you've you've been thinking about as well when you have gone through the journey? Like how how was like if you ask you this, like how was the first episode compared to uh, the last episode that you did. So look, I'll admit like the, so when I started it, I, of course, when you don't have anything in the beginning, you have nothing by definition, right? So I'm like, Hey, I want to start a podcast. Getting the first guest is going to be difficult though, because I don't have a podcast. So how am I going to convince somebody to come on this non-existent podcast? Right? So right. the first, what I did for the first three episodes, I reached out to, you know, industry friends that have companies and said, Hey, here's what I'm doing as a personal favor. Would you do this for me? They all said yes. Um, so shout out to John from incentive games, Adam from thrive fantasy and Omer from sports IQ for being my first three guests. I lined all three of those up and then released them at the same time. Um, and I have to admit that I haven't listened to those three episodes since because it's so cringe. <laughs> I can't bear the thought of listening to them again. Um, I can relate to that say, as well. Yeah, right. Like all that to say, as with anything, the more reps you get in, the easier it gets, the more natural it becomes, the more comfortable it becomes, the less anxiety inducing it becomes. I, don't, I still get nervous for every episode. Don't get me wrong, but uh, it, it comes a little bit easier now than maybe it did like 66 episodes ago or whatever. So it's a continual work in progress, but you know, we're trending in the right direction with it all. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's such a good point, uh, Jesse, that you mentioned. And I think, uh, you know, something I'd, I'd like to talk today about a little bit more is uh, kind of like how to start the podcast. What does it take? Uh, what personality do you need to be? But kind of as a prelude to that, I, I wanted to just mention my own kind of journey into the podcast as well, that um, I used to be 
terrified of speaking in front of people. It was like uh, one of my worst phobias. Like it was kind of like, you know, people are scared of snakes. For me, it was like speaking in front of people was uh, my absolute biggest phobia. And, um, you know, it was uh, obviously limiting in my career because I wasn't able to go on stage. I wasn't able to even speak in front of big meetings. I, I have kind of like a, a, a speech impediment uh, uh, with a lot of filler noises and I can kind of lose track of words and stuff like that from time to time. Um, and so for me, the turning point was when we hosted the first I Give Me Next uh, Valletta in 2019. Okay, so the idea, we had a professional host who ended up not turning up. <laughs> okay, this was the biggest event we've ever organized, okay, in you're... 10 years. We, yeah, go ahead. It's like your worst nightmare, right? Basically yes. happening right before your eyes. Yeah, okay. Absolute worst nightmare. And um, it was the biggest event we ever did, right? And we had a room full of people. We managed to sell out this event. There was 800 people in the audience, uh, or even more. It's like 1,000 people in the audience. And, um, you know, two hours before, no host. And then like one hour before, no host. And, you know, now we start to get nervous uh, here. Like, where is the host? Like, we, 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 we go knock on his uh, hotel room. No one opens. We get the hotel to open the room. No one is there. Okay. And, you know, now it's half an hour left. And um, with like 20 minutes ago, the team, we gather in a circle. The room is like totally packed outside. And we are like panicking. We don't know what to do. And we gather in a circle. And um, everyone looks at me as the MD. You know, <laughs> I look back. They look at me. And they, you know, my production manager says like, Pierre, you got to do it, man. This is the only way. Yeah. <laughs> And what are you going to do? You know, I mean, we have to solve, we are problem solvers. That's who we are as event managers, right? So, okay, the produ production manager, he mics me up. Our ex-production manager, he's a world-class production manager, okay? He, he used to work for Live Nation, biggest concert organizers in the world, okay? He did conferences and concerts for like Prodigy, Red Hot Chili Peppers, the whole works, okay? He looks at me and he tells me, Pierre, everything's going to be okay. But you know, when you... You know, when you see in someone that they don't mean it, <laughs> that was my production manager. Okay. <laughs> he did not think it was going to be okay. Cause he knew uh, like my issues with speaking in front of people. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, three, two, one, up you go. Uh, and I was thrown into the, into the stage. But the good thing about that was that I never had time to get nervous because we just needed the show to start, right? Like we just needed it to go on. And so we just needed to find a solution. So I went up there, kept it easy went down, I survived, you know, went back up there again. And throughout the day, I realized like, oh, it's not, it's not that bad, actually. Like, as I can actually do this, right? It's not going to be perfect. It's not like David Attenborough narrating planet Earth or anything, but I can do it, you know. And after that, it was a big turning point for me where anything that was put in front of me in terms of speaking in front of people or speaking publicly, um, I rationalized by telling myself that nothing can possibly be worse than having to go unprepared on stage in front of a conference and somehow try to mask it and it still worked, right? And that's usually how it is when you speak in front of people. People get, tend to get so nervous and uh, they put so much pressure on themselves, but actually the audience generally doesn't notice uh, the kind of mistakes that you do and whatnot. And I thought that was, uh, like, uh, that, that was something that really helped me to get into this. Well, I mean, talk about being thrown into the deep end of the pool, right? I mean, they say that, you know, for most people, like the number one fear ahead of death is 
public speaking, right? So like to that end, right. like you're, you're not alone in that. And, um, you know, to, to be put in that situation and to have it go probably as well as it did. And probably without the vast majority of the audience, as you say, uh, knowing that that was even the plan, um, you know, uh, and now, look, you know, obviously like what, four years later, here we are. And now you're, <laughs> you know, you're, you're here, right? Like, um, you know, it's those, those types of moments, I think for people that, you know, the unexpected ones is like really where like true growth comes from. And also like really right. also like developing your own confidence in yourself that like, you know, when, when you're done, like I did it right. I can do this. I, all the self-doubt, like those voices start to get a little bit quieter in your head uh, once you actually do the scary thing. So um, no, man, that, that's a great anecdote and yeah, relatable for sure. Absolutely. And so, and so my, my question to you, Jesse, is um, now that you've kind of built the podcast, you, you have a great audience uh, already, you've kind of gotten over the most difficult hump, which is to, to start the podcast and then to build an audience. Uh, if you now look back and you kind of analyze uh, what does it take to start the podcast and what does it take to become successful as a podcast host, um, what would you say to people who perhaps consider to venture into starting their own podcast, but they don't know exactly what or how or so on and so forth. What, what are your kind of tips, your, your secrets into founding your own podcast? I mean, this sounds very cliche and it's not a secret at all, but like for me, I had again, like literally zero experience. So it just started with some basic research. I was Googling. The first thing I Googled was like, what microphone does Tim Ferriss use? And thinking that if it's good enough for right. Tim Ferriss, it's probably good enough for me. He used this $89 one from Amazon that he recommends. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, if it's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. So I ordered a microphone. Um, and really like getting started, there's no actual impediment to getting started other than some you know basic stuff, computer, microphone, whatever, right? Ignoring all of that, there's no actual impediment other than just starting, right? So I think like the biggest thing and, and obviously it's easier said than done, right? Everything we just talked about with like overcoming the fear and the self-doubt and the imposter syndrome and, you know, the sense that like, if you do this podcast, you're speaking into the void because nobody's listening anyway. So what the hell is the point? Nobody's even listening. Like all of that stuff, right? Um, you know, that that's actually the hardest part. And it's, it's, it's not like a super useful answer to people. It's not that actionable, but like that is it, right? Do some research, figure it out and just start. Like this, seriously, like the biggest thing, and this goes for any content, right? Not just audio over the podcast medium, whether it's, it's writing, um, you know, posting on social media or thought leadership on LinkedIn, like whatever it is, the biggest thing I found is just consistency, right? Staying consistent with the content creation is the biggest thing. And in doing so, having some confidence and some trust and some faith that good things will happen. Right. And, you know, it's, 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 you know, I, I guess, you know, you're instinctively, you want to like, start to measure how am I doing and understand how you're doing. But the reality is like, at least for me in the first year of doing one podcast a week, there was like no metrics to speak of. I didn't really know if anybody was listening. Um, and again, like this sense of like speaking into the void um, is, is enough to probably decide to just shut it all down because nobody's listening anyway. So what the hell's the point? But actually continuing to push um, is the secret that unlocked for me. And what I learned through that is like, there is this tipping point where eventually Things will start to happen. People will start to discover it. Not only will they start to tune in for the new episodes, but they'll start to consume the back catalog of existing episodes. So now when I log into my Podbean dashboard and I look at like the, the downloads, like, you know, it starts to look a bit more interesting now than it did a, a year ago, let's say. Um, but look, like the, the secret to starting is just starting. There is no impediments other than yourself and your own ambition and, and willingness to put yourself in that position of discomfort. That really is it. And it's not, an, not that compelling of an answer, but like that is just the cold truth of it all. Absolutely. And, and, and to add to that as well, I mean, I've noticed from your podcast that the fact that you are as consistent as you are uh, as well is, uh, is a huge uh, upside to this as well and, 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 and a really important 
thing to carry with you as well. Um, as you point out here, you know, it can be difficult uh, to, to start a podcast because um, it's a big commitment, right, to start an episode of a podcast. It's like 30 minutes uh, your episode usually are. And the, the, it's, it's quite a lot to ask from someone to uh, to spend 30 minutes to listen to uh, to a podcast of yours and so um that kind of getting over that first hump into getting people to trust you and to trust yeah. your podcast when there's like a million other podcasts or a million other pieces of content that they can consume but they choose to consume consume your podcast it takes time and like it takes time to get people to give it a go and to give it a shot and give it a try and then hopefully you know, you can start retaining that audience uh, after a while as well. And uh, I, I, I like what you say here as well, that it's it's a lot about just getting started and then staying consistent and then not giving up. Uh, but also to add to that as well, I think um, seeing that, like if we think about like how the people kind of choose what content they want to consume, they usually don't end up listening to a podcast or watching any form of content for that matter randomly and so to to get someone to pick your podcast it has to have some form of value proposition right and and um if we look at the bigger podcasts today like say the joe rogan podcast or lex friedman or uh, or tim ferris as you mentioned here they they are quite Gen they are like generalists, so they will have like a wide range of, of guests on the podcast. Uh, and there isn't really a clear red thread other than people like the host. Uh, I think those are the, um, those are the uh, kind of exceptions. But generally, podcasts, uh, I think especially when you start, they sh you should find some sort of, sort of niche that you want to attack. Right, like if you want to learn about the iGaming industry startup landscape in North America... There is one podcast that is excellent and where you can do that, right? Um, and uh, so I think you you did the absolute right move on that front as well uh, of just kind of creating an identity around the podcast. And I think that's also something to think about if you uh, are, if someone is considering to start a podcast is like what niche can they create and then stay consistent with that niche and then build the audience over time. I think that's also kind of part of the success. I completely agree, Pierre, and like I'll add to that by saying that the word niche is quite an interesting one, right? Like you're correct that my podcast is very niche. The way I talk about it, there's actually three niches to mine if you think about it, right? So the first niche in the yep. broadest sense is it's a business podcast, right? So it's in the business niche. Right. Underneath business, then we're, we're, we're segmenting it to a specific industry, which is betting and iGaming. So it's a niche within a niche. Then further, one level down is I'm only focusing on the early stage ecosystem within this industry, within the wider business uh, niche, right? So right. it's very niche. It's very narrow. Um, as I'm always very quick to proclaim to people, like, it's not doing Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss numbers. It never will. And that's okay. My audience <laughs> is one that is exactly. hy hyper-relevant, hyper-targeted. Um, it's very relevant, compelling content for that audience. And it doesn't need to be more than that. And I'm okay with that. And I think the, you know, to your question around, like, for other people that are maybe considering starting a podcast, my advice would be, like, Number one, everybody probably should at least try starting one. Everybody has some amount of insight or expertise or perspective that's worth sharing. And nothing is too niche to share. There's always going to be an audience for, for everything. Um, and, you know, people shouldn't be constrained or, or inhibited by the sense that, like, whatever, whatever it is their podcast focuses on, that it's too 
uninteresting or niche or, or narrow or whatever. That's not true. That's, that's a story. Um, and, um, I, you know, everybody has a story to tell. Everybody has interesting insights to share. And I really do think everybody should at least try, right? Um, at least to which good things could come out of it. If you stick with it, like from a personal branding perspective, right? Obviously there's a whole bunch of benefits that come from that credibility. You can start to establish yourself as a credible authority on a certain topic. Um, and then obviously, you know, you do it long enough, interesting things start coming towards you. So you end up becoming a bit of a magnet for stuff coming your way. And at least in my case, like there's a lot of interesting stuff that hits my inbox now that I can really only attribute to the podcast and, and sort of it being that, that magnet out there that brings these things into me. So, um, yeah, just to put a stamp on it. Um, I think everybody should at least kick the can on it once, try it. Um, and, and just see, uh, really there's no excuse here in 2023 to, to not do it. You know, like everything, uh, I think like 80 something percent of podcasts will eventually like stop producing new content within the first six months. So even by sort of staying consistent for six months, you're already placing yourself in the top like 10 or 15% of podcasts that are out there. So uh, no excuses, everyone is, is the takeaway here. Absolutely, Jesse. Uh, I love that we, we are like 30 minutes into this podcast. We just covered the second point <laughs> of the uh, agenda of too many points uh, here. Uh, not to crack a joke, but uh, two podcast hosts walks into a bar. No one walked out for three days. Uh, nice. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on to the next one. Sure. Uh, a really interesting. So, so again, you know, you are probably the person with the finger on the pulse as it comes to the startup landscape of the industry, uh, not the funds, uh, not other industry players. I think you are the person who knows the the landscape best. Not to put too much pressure on you here, okay? But, uh, but still, I would love to talk a little bit more about the startup landscape in general of the industry. Uh, what do you, if you were to summarize kind of the state of play of the startup landscape of the iGaming and online sports betting industry today, uh, what, what in your opinion is the, the state of play right now? Well, it's a big question. Um, we come at it from a few different yes. angles here. I think just, I mean, it, it's hard to answer that without, I guess, acknowledging just sort of the, the macroeconomic backdrop and obviously you know, sort of the trickle down effect that that has on the early stage part of the ecosystem. And, you know, we talk about sort of funding and, uh, you know, I, I recently shared uh, some data in the betting startups newsletter, quick plug for my newsletter. Um, right. I recently shared some data in there from Crunchbase, which put out an article a couple of weeks ago, um, which showed in Q1 of this year, global venture funding is down. I think it was 53% year over year compared to Q1 last year. Um, so, you know, taking that into context, you know, the funding landscape is definitely an issue right now. Um, that being said, uh, you know, VC funds and firms raised, uh, record amounts of, of new capital in 2022. So there's actually the, 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 the slowdown in funding isn't for a lack of capital available to be deployed. On the contrary, there's record amounts of dry powder sitting there right now. I think I saw some data the other day. There's like $580 billion globally in venture firms uh, accounts that are basically waiting to be deployed. Um, so there's a lot of funding out there right now available, but there is a slowdown. So how do you sort of reconcile that disconnect? Um, I mean, the reality is like, you know, the, 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 you can no longer raise money with a pitch deck and a dream, I think is what it boils down to. Right. A year ago, right. two years ago, even, you know, less than a year ago, that was still somewhat true. Uh, if it was true, then it's definitely not true now. Right. Investors are looking for sound fundamentals. They're looking for the things that they probably should have been looking for all along anyways. And that the hype and sort of the exuberance of, of, you know, all of that is, is been deflated a little bit, uh, but that's not a bad thing. That's a healthy correction. Um, all that being said, like the early stage ecosystem within the industry is as healthy as it's ever been. There's some strong, strong companies, uh, that, that we can point to as examples of that. 
um, despite the fact that Q1 funding was a little bit slower. Um, you know, we're only a few weeks into Q2 here. We've already seen a number of funding announcements from early stage companies in the space, right? Uh, Profit, Exp Profit Exchange just announced a $10 million raise. Beyond Play just had a $5 million something dollar raise. There's right. a couple other ones I'm forgetting in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, it, it's really hard to talk about the, the startup landscape without, I think, addressing that first and foremost on just sort of the, the funding and, and, and capital side of it all. I think um, looking at it from another perspective as it is right now, as I see it, um, you know, like they're, especially for the uh, B2B startups out there that are, are targeting the operators as their potential customers. I mean, you know, we're seeing a lot of movement right now in the U.S. specifically um, with the, some of the operators there. And, you know, what does that mean for startups that are pitching their wares to the operators? You know, um, you know, we've, we've seen some operators, you know, shutter operations already. Uh, I mean, we're all reading the headlines like this week about, you know, rumors of, of points bet and, you know, um, what will become of it in the U.S. market. Um, and all of these sort of challenger brands, um, you know, it, it's, you know, can they sustain operations, right? And that makes it very difficult for B2B startups, I think, to like properly um, really sort of project their business and, and, and forecast their, their future business, not really knowing sort of like the, the you know, that the, their customers will ultimately be there for years to come. The concentration of market share amongst sort of like the big four, which is what, I don't know, like 85% right now or whatever the number is, give or take 5%. Um, you know, it, it makes it difficult, um, but there is still a ton of opportunity there. But I think for those on the B2B side, um, really, really, you know, getting getting that traction is even more important than ever, just because it's such a dynamic landscape right now amongst the operators and, and you know, with their own operations, really trying to uh, sustain that. And, and a lot of them, you know, obviously waiting for iCasino to emerge a little bit more uh, persistently across states um, and that being seen as sort of the path to profitability. Uh, and then for the startups in the meantime, yeah, uh, it, it's incredibly difficult to to sell. All that being said, for those that are successful in getting their products integrated into some of the operators, I mean, there's a ton of success stories out there right now. The operators are still looking for innovation. They're still looking for ways to differentiate what is a very commoditized product right now in the U.S. Uh, and they're really looking to these early stage companies to be the drivers of that. So still a ton of opportunity. It's not all doom and gloom out there right now. Uh, and for good, strong teams with compelling products and a unique differentiator that adds value, there's always going to be opportunity for those types of startups. Right. Uh, Steph, and, and if you were to pinpoint some of the most interesting startups that you know today, uh, say three, four uh, startups, who would you pinpoint and why? Good question. Um... <laughs> So yeah, look, um, I mean, even before the podcast, right? Like when I was with Pinnacle, part of my remit with Pinnacle was looking at new products in the market that Pinnacle could potentially leverage, right? So I was already out there talking to every startup anyway, which is also part of the reason I started the podcast. It was something I was already doing, so it just made sense. Um, so I've, I've, I've seen it, you know, to your point, like I've, I've seen most things, right? I mean, uh, I, I probably see as much as most investors get across their desk in terms of just different companies doing different things and have a pretty good sense of the landscape. So there's a lot out there. Um, you know, as far as the podcast, like, you know, 70 ish episodes, I've, I've talked to lots of entrepreneurs. It's really difficult to answer that, but I'm not going to skirt the question. Um, maybe I'll slightly reframe <laughs> it here and I'll, I'll say if I had to draft a three company fantasy startup team, who would it be? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, That's a good question. I'll, I'll exclude operators from the list though. So like names like profit exchange, sport trade, mojo, underdog won't count. Ignoring those, um, three that I would, uh, put on my fantasy team. The first would be a company called sharp sports. Have you heard of them, by the way? Not sure, actually. Okay. Tell me. Sharp Sports, they're very cool. Um, they're building an infrastructure layer between operators and third-party developers. And basically what they do is they allow you know, app developers to integrate users' sportsbook accounts into their apps and their products. 
uh, which you can imagine would unlock a lot of interesting use cases for things like uh, bet tracking, uh, unified dashboards, um, personalization, things like that. So, um, you know, they're, they're very much taking the yeah, Ryan Murphy, who's the, the founder there, the co-founder uh, and Sam. Um, Ryan sort of talks about Sharp Sports trying to be like what Stripe is to the internet in terms of being this like infrastructure layer that sits between everything behind every sort of e-commerce transaction on the internet. Uh, sort of their vision for Sharp Sports, Sharp Sports is to be that infrastructure layer that sits underneath a lot of the main sort of betting tools and products that are out there on the B2C side. So they're doing some really interesting stuff. Um, you know, if I was to make my own sort of like index fund of like startups uh, on my fantasy team, uh, they would definitely yeah. be in there just because I think they're like, and they're also flying under the radar a bit, right? Like they're not a well, they're B2B. It's, it's really like quote unquote boring stuff, which is like really just connecting up like pipes underneath the hood, um, which isn't that like sexy or compelling, but like it's a very interesting business. Um, and they're definitely, I, th I think, onto something pretty big there. So that's number one. Second one I'll pick from my list is a company called Alt Sports Data. Uh, other than being a very uh, cool team of people and individuals, uh, great, great team there. Alt Sports, basically what they're doing is securing official data rights from alternative sports leagues. Uh, alternative sports being like... I mean, if you ever watched the X Games back in the day, like basically a lot of the sports in there are what they would call alternative sports, right? Like skateboarding, uh, BMX, uh, you know, motocross, surfing, all of these sorts of things. All sports Anything you would see on the ESPN Ocho. Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so all sports <laughs> data, they're getting the official data rights to a lot of these uh, alternative sports. But then what they're doing with that data is uh, they're developing uh, betting markets and offering managed trading services to operators. And... I mean, look, I, I was in my teenage years in the late 90s uh, and I skateboarded uh, as a troubled youth back in the day. Like, so like this, like, I don't know if it just like really appeals to like 17 year old Jesse or what, but like the alternative sports, I think population is massive, right? People uh, that skateboard, surf, snowboard, BMX, whatever, like it's, it's, it's the sport that a lot of us do, but from like a professional perspective, like it really gets dwarfed, at least in North America, by like the big four professional leagues, right? So I love what alt sports data is doing in terms of tapping into that opportunity and sort of the passion of alternative sports fans. Um, they actually just, I think just the other day, uh, I just saw a headline that they just for the first time offered um, markets on a skateboarding competition with DraftKings. So DraftKings took alt sports data. Uh, and then for the first time, yeah, skateboarding markets are being offered, which again, for 17 year old me is like the coolest thing uh, I could ever imagine. So uh, alt sports data is number two on my roster. Third and final one I'll wrap off right now, Pierre is, and maybe this is a bit of the recency effect with my own podcast, but I'd be remiss to not include Beyond Play in that list, which, uh, is um, obviously a very familiar name to you and the iGaming Next podcast. Um, Carolina Peltz might be the most impressive founder I've spoken to so far. I, I'm, I'm not just you know saying this disingenuously. Like she is uh, just like end to end like the most impressive founder so far. And what they're doing at Beyond Play in terms of bringing like true innovation to iCasino is they have a very ambitious vision, a bold vision with a lot of like technical uncertainty. But if they can get it right, they're going to be a massive company. And I think I mentioned a few minutes ago, they just raised uh, uh, five something million dollars a couple of weeks ago. It was announced, which is obviously, you know, a huge validation of what they're doing. And obviously for investors to agree with that by putting up the money, I mean, I think really uh, proves that they are onto something and their approach of turning, you know, solitary slot gaming experiences into a multiplayer experience really is like true innovation. So uh, those would be the three I would put in there. Uh, apologies to the other 60 something that I missed. Uh, I'd love to put them all in there. But yeah, probably the big three would be those ones off the top of my head. Solid top three fantasy startup uh, uh, list. Yes, <laughs> I must agree to that. And, uh, and a great plug of uh, Carolina Palk. She is 
an absolute inspiration to uh, not only the women in the industry who are looking to make a career and to, uh, to kind of fight for their space, uh, but for the entire industry uh, as well. Carolina is just an incredibly gritty person uh, who just gets stuff done, right? And, and um, on top of, you know, this high octane kind of startup, gritty mode that she is in she's also a mother uh, of, 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 a, of a young boy as well so um, she is just proving that if you put your mind to something you can achieve anything she is she is absolutely amazing i i i i, I can't agree more with you on that front jesse and i love the podcast that you did with her recently as well that's also a great episode um carolina talks a lot about uh uh, her battling, you know, kind of her insecurities uh, in uh, in going through this journey, uh, and uh, the fear of like, uh, you know, am I able to kind of do what I'm supposed to do? She she raised all this capital, and now she has to deliver, right? Like it's a quite scary process to go through. Uh, that maybe not everyone realizes that um, uh, that uh, you know even someone as confident as Carolina Palk. Uh, uh, the, the confidence that she uh, gives away, uh, oftentimes there's also uh, a lot of kind of inner demons that you that you need to deal with uh, along this way as well. And I, I really like how Carolina is kind of candid of talking about her own battles uh, so that other people can see that they are not alone in, in these insecurities. Yeah, very well said, Pierre. And I can only, uh, you know, uh, endorse everything you just said about Carolina specifically. And like what I really, really appreciated about her and, and the way she showed up on my podcast is... Uh, to your point, like she was extremely vulnerable, right? And, and wasn't um, masquerading or wasn't wearing the mask and saying, yeah, you know, we raise this money, we're doing all this stuff, we're the best, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She was very vulnerable about all of the challenges and, and the you know, the grind. And like, for her, this is the culmination of like a 20 plus year career in this industry. So like everything she's been doing has been like laying bricks to slowly build this thing. And it's all led her to this point. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, personal challenges that come with that. And, I, you know, her ability to open up and, and share those and, and, you know, share that with the audience. And, and I'm sure a lot of other people resonated with that, uh, but it really doesn't get talked about as much as it should, in my opinion. So yeah, you know, shout out and credit to, to Carolina and the team uh, uh, at Beyond Play. They, they are crushing it and, and no doubt will continue to crush it. Absolutely. And, and uh, Carolina, she talks a lot about uh, the well, imposter syndrome, uh, that, right? It's to, to kind of wrap it up in, in one term. And um Something I found interesting in that conversation, and it's, it's something I would like to talk to Carolina about a little bit more, um, is that, uh, you know, she, she talked about, uh, like, how do you overcome imposter syndrome? And um, you kind of have to accept that it's there and, and um, you know, try to fight away the thoughts and so on and so forth. Uh, but I, I would actually uh, take it a step further with imposter syndrome and say that uh, imposter syndrome is there for a reason, and it actually can be a good thing to walk around with imposter syndrome. Because if I would choose a person to have on my team, uh, I would much rather choose the person who is second guessing themselves. And it's like asking themselves, am I really doing the right thing here? Rather than the person who just kind of comes in and, and with like 100% confidence and, and um, assumes that everything they do is perfect or whatever. Uh, I think imposter syndrome is uh, like a champion by your side, as long as it doesn't take over, uh, kind of the, as long as you don't let it escalate. But it's the same thing for a lot of things in life. I mean, um, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of like words or kind of syndromes that have a negative uh, connotation uh, that oftentimes in the right dose is a positive uh, thing for, for you. I think uh, it's, a, it's a good spin to, to put on this. Uh, and I think certainly Carolina is a great example of that where the imposter syndrome manifests in her of her just working incredibly hard and really doing the right thing. 
Um, right, that's how it looks like on the outside when you look at Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, on to uh, the next point, uh, Jesse. Here, I want to talk as well about a point that you mentioned earlier, which is the fact that uh, there are just a few incumbents in the online sports betting and iGaming uh, industry in the North American market. Uh, there's four operators, as you mentioned, that own something like 85% of the market share. Two of them, FanDuel and DraftKings, they own, you know, like 70% to 75%. So it's kind of like going from a duopoly, uh, from an oligopoly to a duopoly in the industry. It seems like the bigger only gets bigger. Uh, what do you think this means for the startup landscape? Because oftentimes you have these, like, uh, you have a quite vibrant startup landscape in the North American markets, but really and truly, many of them are only fighting for a, a couple, like one, two, three, four uh, operators or potential customers. Um, not everyone can win, of course, and uh, that means that these operators have a quite big, you know, power in uh, and a big say in how the um, startup landscape will evolve. Uh, so, so what do you think? Is, is this a is this a problem? Do you think? Um, am I taking this a little bit too much to the extreme? Uh, how does this affect the startup landscape? I mean, my personal view on it is probably it, it, it doesn't, at least as of today, it doesn't affect things in a material way. I mean, you know, over a long enough time horizon, yes, it does. If, if you know, you think about a world in which there's true consolidation and there's only, you know, true, all, all, true oligopoly where there was only, you know, two, three or four operators serving all of the U.S. market. Obviously, that's not the case. What we have is dozens of operators basically fighting for that last 10 or 15% of market share. So for what does that mean for startups in the industry and particularly those that are, you know, again, selling B2B that see these operators as their target customers, um, you know, it, it's, it's probably a natural instinct to say that as a problem. I think the reality is though, that these dozens, you know, the, the 20 ish or, you know, two dozen ish, uh, operators are, are really fighting for the remaining market share. Um, I, th I think I think that actually creates opportunity for a lot of the startups, right? These these guys again are really looking for ways to differentiate, to you know capture mind share, capture the attention of people out there that are facing, uh, you know, what is a fairly like commoditized landscape from a product perspective. Um, you know, there there really is just opportunity out there still, albeit that. And the way I like to think about it, Pierre, actually, this is a good analogy that might sort of actually frame it better. Um, if you think about going hunting, right, you know, uh, you know, sport hunting, you can go rabbit hunting, you can go deer hunting, or you can go elephant hunting, right? Three different animals of three <laughs> very different sizes, right? In the context of startups, I've always liked to think about it this way uh, in my time is that, you know, if you're out hunting rabbits, you have to, rabbits are very small, so you have to kill a lot of rabbits in order to feed yourself, right? So you're continually out there finding the next rabbit to kill, eating what you kill, so on and so forth. Next level up is a deer. Deer is bigger than a rabbit, right? So you have to kill less deer in order to feed yourself. You still have to kill several, but you know, with each deer you kill, you can eat for a little bit long before needing to find the next one. Then the next rung up is the elephant, right? You only need to kill like one or two elephants to really like eat forever. Uh, you know, not entirely true, of course, but like point point remains. Um, I think if we sort of apply that metaphor to the landscape in the U.S. with operators, right? The startups out there, I think, have a lot of options to go deer hunting. I think there's a lot of operators out there that are sort of like shaped like a deer in that metaphor where they're a good size. You know, you get a couple of them um, and you can have a very nice business and, and likely sustain your business um, for, for the long term. Um, elephant hunting is much more difficult, I think. And obviously, to your point around like consolidation of the market share to just a few of the incumbents, these are the elephants. Um, it's very difficult, I think, for startups to to sell into those. But for those that can, you know, sort of 
cross the Rubicon and actually get in there um, and, and actually integrate a product or a service or whatever with one of these elephants, um, you know, the, these startups are going to be very well positioned. So look, I don't think, you know, any, any industry with monopolistic forces obviously is, is something to be concerned about. I don't think we're there yet. I think there's still lots to go around. I think some of these sort of like, I don't want to call them tier two operators. I don't want to disrespect anybody, but uh, sort of the tier two operators in the U.S. market right now, uh, I think are still very viable targets for a lot of the startups with B2B offerings. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to be the case for years to come. Again, over a long enough time horizon, will that, be, will that continue to be the case? I don't know. But um, certainly for now, uh, I wouldn't be too concerned, despite the sort of alarming headline that this concentration is happening from a, from a market share perspective. Right. And just as a disclaimer here to the, to the listeners, uh, no animals were harmed during the uh, <laughs> recording of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I like the analogy. Uh, just yeah, another point as well, you know, going back to the startup landscape and assuming another the founders themselves, um, since we have talked to so many founders at this stage, uh, is there like, is there a red thread between the founders that you interview? Because, uh, kind of going on this startup journey is a very particular journey to go on. And, um, it's obviously filled with hazards filled with, you know, walking through a minefield of, you know, dangerous things and you're your success rate is going to be super low. Uh, and so you would imagine that there's a very particular type of person who does something as stupid as starting a founder, <laughs> founding a startup, right? Uh, but um, is there is there any like personality traits that you have noted? Is there any red thread uh, in the founders that you have spoken to? Yeah, I'll answer that in just a sec. But just uh, to your last point there, I think, how does the saying go? Something like, entrepreneurs are the only people willing to work 80 hours a week in order to avoid working 40 hours a week. <laughs> right? People, people like me who are like, I can't work a full-time job, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday. So I spend twice as much time trying to do my own thing to avoid actually getting a job. That's a good summary. <laughs> um, no, but to your point, yeah, of course. Um, I think there's absolutely some, I guess, patterns, uh, you know, so, you know, each, each conversation is a data point, pattern matching across those data points. And I think there's a few uh, characteristics in the people that, uh, I think need to exist in order for, you know, for them to be successful ultimately. Um, probably the first thing I've come to learn over, you know, my own career and, and my own journey is like over indexing on EQ or emotional intelligence might be the single greatest thing a person can do, not only for themselves, but again, through the lens of entrepreneurship and, and starting a company. Um, people with high EQ, uh, I think are extremely well positioned to succeed. People without high EQ uh, are, are going to struggle a little bit, right? And, you know, just breaking that down a little bit here, right? Like, what, did, what is EQ, um, emotional intelligence? I mean, people with high emotional intelligence can, you know, number one, like recognize their own emotions and emotions of others and um, sort of use that emotional information to like guide their thinking and their behavior um, to distinguish between like different feelings and, and to like label them appropriately. And maybe most importantly, like they have a high ability to adjust, uh, adjust their emotions to adapt to changing environments. Right. So, um, it takes a lot of self-work to, uh, get clear on one's emotional intelligence and, and doing that work is difficult. It's also scary. Um, you know, personally, I worked with a leadership coach for a couple of years to like really dig into that myself and like try and develop my own EQ. And, you know, it's, it's always a work in progress. There's, there's always work to be done there, but, um, you know, Carolina is a great example of, again, I don't want to turn this podcast into a beyond play plug, but like Carolina is a founder that has uh, exceptionally high EQ from, from what I could take away. And again, pattern matching, I think that's one of the characteristics of 
founders that, that is sort of a prerequisite to success. Um, a couple other ones, just quickly to name them, and then we can kind of pull on the thread here. But uh, I also think the the successful founders have a high uh, degree of curiosity, right? So constantly asking questions, uh, seeking to understand what's going on around them, challenging assumptions, challenging the status quo, just that overarching sense of, of curiosity is, is another like really critical factor, in my opinion. Um, somewhat extending from, I guess, EQ is then humility. Uh, I think humility is uh, something that all, again, successful founders have to some extent. So, you know, can you, especially once you start getting a bit of success, right? Can you like, can you check your ego at the door? Um, can you manage that? Um, you know, can you be willing to admit you don't know everything? Uh, can you show that you're coachable, right? Like, are you willing to, to be coached and to learn and to be wrong? Um, having humility is, is, is crucially important. And then I guess the final thing I would add to my, my list here is empathy. Um, this one might be a bit controversial because I know not everybody agrees with that, but I, say empathy through the lens, particularly of companies that are at the earlier stage, probably even like pre product market fit. I think empathy is brutally important because the reality is when you're pre product market fit, you're still working to find the solutions to your users problems. And in order to like really truly understand what the problem is you're seeking to solve in the first place, you need to have a high degree of empathy for the people that are experiencing that problem. So yeah, I think taken together, like empathy, humility, curiosity, and just high EQ uh, seem to be like the common thread that I've seen so far through all of these conversations I've had. Yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, breakdown, Jesse. Um, just to, to share like an interesting kind of fact I heard um, and, and I was reading about uh, in a previous podcast. Um, there is uh, three diagnoses that overperform professionally that do really well as, um, as entrepreneurs as, and as professionals. So... Um, First of all, people with Asperger syndrome, people are on the spectrum and um, uh, they tend to overperform in their careers. And the theory behind that is that um, because people with Asperger, they kind of lack the ability to understand social cues. Uh, they form their own opinion so strong that even though people tell them that they are wrong, they are not able to hear that they are wrong, essentially. And so they kind of stick to their guns. So if you imagine people like Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Peter Thiel, like those kind of like Silicon Valley uh, legends. Um, they have gone so much against the stream uh, and they have been so like um, unorthodox and uh, especially Elon Musk obviously has like totally transformed industries um, beyond any comprehension. And that comes just from kind of sticking and holding on to your belief and not letting people uh, kind of intrude uh, with, uh, with uh, their own kind of opinions. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, second one that... Um, that overperforms professionally is uh, people with uh, ADHD. So uh, um, because of the like incredible energy that uh, that uh, that comes from uh, from that uh, diagnosis, um, people can kind of you know kind of push through with this like enormous energy and pulling in the long hours and so on when they get obsessed with a with a product. And then thirdly, it's quite interesting, and I don't really have an explanation for this, but third is uh, people who are anorectic actually tend to overperform in uh, in professional life as well uh, i can't tell you exactly why that is but those are the th kind of three diagnoses that are uh, overperforming a bit and um if i would look at uh, myself and you know we spoke about this just before the podcast here but uh, i picked something up uh, in, in a previous call that uh, that you and me had where um you know you, you mentioned at some point oh it's my it's my adhd that is uh, like uh, acting on me and, and and whatnot and so um 
you know, uh, I can see that in myself as well from time to time that I have a little bit of those uh, tendencies. And uh, my girlfriend as well, she is uh, not diagnosed with ADHD, but she is she would definitely be diagnosed with ADHD on, on a milder uh, side of things. And how that manifests with her is that um, she is like she has like an incredible energy. She has a million ideas uh, that she gets super excited for, but she struggles to kind of stay consistent and to kind of focus on one thing. She wants to do like a million things at the same time. And so she kind of, kind of like in her like journey, she is like learning how to use this energy uh, in a productive way uh, rather than a destructive way. And so I want to kind of pass the ball over to you a little bit, uh, Jesse, because I know that, that like you might have a little bit those tendencies as well. Like, is that something you think about? Like, do, do you see um, potentially that energy that you have on the like kind of like lighter side on the ADHD side? Uh, do you see that as something that you use as something positive? Is that something that something sometimes hinder you, or how do you kind of deal with that on a week to week, year by year basis? Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective and in, in conversation, frankly. So, um, you know, I guess first thing I'll say is, and we talked about this before we started recording, but just for the benefit of the yeah. audience. Um, yeah, I did sort of talk about my ADHD, but I will disclaim, like I, I personally haven't yeah. gone in to see if I actually have it. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of using that yeah, exactly. um, maybe incorrectly, but nevertheless, like the, the, I guess another way to call it for me and maybe from like a, you know, an entrepreneurial perspective is like shiny object syndrome, right? And I think this is something that <laughs> to some degree we all have whereby, you know, we're all right. committed to this thing that we're on, but along the way, along the journey, there's always something that shows up or emerges along the side of the road. Distractions. Distractions, yes. right? And a lot of them are, are compelling. A lot of them are sexy. Um, you know, like six months ago, we probably had a lot of startups that were focused on this thing. Now all of a sudden, like AI is this big topic, right? And that's, that's a big shiny thing, big shiny object that's going to potentially distract a lot of people from their core mission, right? So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, for me personally, like I definitely, definitely suffer from that. And I think if I was to sit down and like write out all the different things I do in my day, uh, it, it would probably point towards something like that. Um, you know, between the podcast, my accompanying newsletter, I have some other ambitions around that. Separately, I have another project. Uh, I've built, talk about this if we want, but I've built the, the industry's largest dedicated job board. So like, that's a thing. I'm advising a couple startups in this space. I'm, you know, always talking about different consulting. So like, I'm, 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 my ability to focus is like near zero, I guess is what it boils down to. <laughs> and, um, you know, your question around whether that that's a good thing or a bad thing or somewhere in between, I mean, uh, it's a bit of a hedge here as an answer, but I mean, somewhere in between, I think it is the reality, right? I mean, if, if you're constantly responding to every new, um, cue that comes up or everything that, that shows up on the journey, um, you're going to get nowhere, right? We, we know this, you need to have some amount of like sustained focus and, um, you know, we talked to while ago about like podcasting and like the importance of consistency with it. It's no different with anything else. Staying consistent, staying focused is important for execution. That all being said, uh, I do also believe like it's perfectly okay to continuously, and you should also continuously assess the landscape around you as you're doing your thing, as you're focused on your thing. Um, you need to be continuously looking around, right? Uh, the world's always changing around us. We need to be aware of what's happening around us. That requires us to be you know, turning our heads and looking in different directions, even away from the thing that we're chasing. Um, so long as we turn our head back to that thing that we're chasing uh, at the end of, uh, at the end of it. So, um, look like, you know, for me personally, like I, I, I see it as a, a for me, um, it's, it's, it's a good thing. I lean into it. Um, I'm an ideas person. I, you know, I discard 99% of the ideas, but you know, the 1% that I, I think are actually interesting. Like I want to see those through and I, I'll find a way to make space for those. Um, I need to do a better job of that because 
the other side of that is like you take on too many things and you end up drowning. You can't do anything. Um, so there, there's a balance to be had there. But um, it, it's an interesting question, Pierre. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of people I've, I certainly speak with that have some version of the same story. Uh, so it's a common one, um, I guess, to put that out there as well, like for people that you know, identify as having sort of these patterns as well. Like you're not alone, like, you know, more, most of us seem like we're like this to some extent. I don't know if it's, you know, chalked up a little bit to like our collective attention spans being somewhat shortened by like social media and just like our consumption patterns. I don't know. Obviously that's probably part of it, but um, I do see that as being like a, a superpower and, and, you know, the, the three examples you cited, like definitely are superpowers as well for, for those people, for those individuals. And, the ability to take something that could be construed as a negative and spinning it into something that is actually a superpower, uh, I, I think is, is, is powerful stuff. And, and, you know, those are certain examples. I think there's other things too, that could be seen as detriments that are actually superpowers. And for entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, we, we come in all different flavors, shapes, styles, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot to be learned, I think from people that, uh, do have, you know, some of these challenges that maybe not all, not everybody does. So yeah. Um, look, I, I could probably stand to focus a little bit more. I'm not going to lie. Uh, my wife certainly agrees with that. She's like, what'd you do today? I like last night I was making dinner and, um, she's like, what'd you do today? Yeah. And I kind of rattled off like five or six things. She's like, what? Um, anyway, so like, <laughs> so there, there's truth in that, but yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to channel it as like a positive thing in my case. And, and, yeah. um, yeah, exactly. No, I, I, th I think that's a great point. And what we talked about before is like, um, that type of energy and in a certain dose is, is an incredible asset, uh, right? And um, to illustrate that you are definitely not the worst uh, and, uh, and, uh, in, in that uh, field. I don't know if you've seen this uh, meme, you know, where Homer Simpson, the GIF, when he goes into the bush oh, yeah. and then he emerges <laughs> as something else. And there was this really funny version where, uh, you know, there was like, uh, at first you are a Web3 expert. And then you you withdraw into the bush and then you come out as an AI expert, which is kind of like the next big thing. And you see people do this a lot where they have a hard time to stay consistent. And so they just move on to what is the latest uh, hype, basically. And because they do that, they, they are never able to kind of establish themselves uh, as a... As, a, as an authority in anything, right? Because they're always moving on to the next thing. Because often what happens with, uh, say, you know, right now we are on AI summer, but we've been in AI summers before. And after the AI summer comes the AI winter. Mm -hmm. And then those are the first people that drop off into the next hype that emerges, right? And so when the crypto hype, uh, the, the recent crypto hype started, a lot of new people um, kind of emerged as, uh, you know, self-proclaimed experts. And then the AI hype started and they kind of immediately moved on to become an AI expert. Uh, but they are never able to kind of stick around for long enough for the next kind of hype cycle to begin. Because eventually if uh, crypto enters a new hype cycle and it's a new crypto summer, then you will see the people who was able to navigate the winter, uh, who really was able to kind of sharpen the sword, and then they will emerge as the leaders, not the ones who kind of jump from ship to ship to ship uh, without finding any focus. Well, I think that comes back as well to like, one thing we haven't really talked about yet, but like the importance of having conviction as an entrepreneur and recognizing that like whatever it is you're on, there's going to be hype cycles around you constantly. And right. You need to have deep conviction about what you're working on because there's going to be periods and like crypto is a good example where right now, right, we are in the crypto winter and lots of, there's been a massive flight away from crypto and Web3 and NFTs and into things like AI or whatever, like the newest thing is. But there's also this like population of 
people with deep conviction in sort of the promise of blockchain, the promise of crypto that are continuing to focus, continuing to build. Um, and they're basically trying to prepare themselves to be well positioned for when the next crypto summer comes, recognizing that these are just cycles that happen around us and their conviction around their mission is really what's guiding them through this this winter, which is obviously like the worst time to be uh, for, for any entrepreneur. Um, so yeah, like conviction is is brutally important. Actually, a guest on my podcast, a recent one, Jamie Messler from the Gaming Society, who's awesome, by the way, she said this one thing uh, when we were talking that really like stuck with me and resonated, which is that it's important to have conviction over consensus, right? So, you know, in her case, I think she was you know, talking to investors for a previous company and everybody was saying this won't work, this won't work, this won't work, right? So rather than like listening to that feedback as consensus, she really believed in her own conviction that it will work. Um, she ended up doing pretty well with a company called The Players Tribune and her co-founder, a guy named Derek Jeter. So like that all went fairly well, but that is only like really chalked up to the conviction she had. Um, and the same can be said for other people that are, you know, building during hype cycles and are, you know, in the quote unquote winter time, um, it can be tough to sort of stay there, but that conviction is really what will get you through. And again, be hopefully well positioned for when summer comes. Absolutely. And summer is coming. That's for sure. That's right. Uh, Jesse, uh, to start rounding things off today, I want to, again, turn the tables on you because I know that the question you always ask your guests is, uh, where do you see yourself in five years time? And I thought that I didn't want to be worse here today, but then to ask the question back to you, um, just say, where do you see yourself in five year times? Um, so look, like it's, it's interesting, like without getting like overly personal, like the last few months of my life has been uh, life changing in, in a fairly negative way. Um, so it's really like reframed a lot of like my thinking about the things I want to be doing, the things I want to be spending my time on, where I want to be focusing my energy and like making my impact. And I guess like as I reflect on all that and, you know, talking a bit about like my journey in this industry so far over the last 13, 14 years, um, I, I love this industry. Right. And I think one thing that, like, you know, you and I connected over right away when we first spoke is just like each of us has this passion for the industry that which is really like what's kept us here for the long term. And both of us in, in you know, what we're doing respectively, like is all about increasing sort of the overall like TAM of the industry. Right. We're trying to spread the good word about the good things happening in it, trying to attract attention on it, trying to draw people into it um, and really trying to help it grow ultimately. Right. And for me, that really like comes back to like, look, hand over my heart. If I'm being honest, like had you asked me 20 years ago, if I would have seen myself like having a career in like the online gambling industry, the answer is like, no, of course not. Uh, but yet I found myself here and I find myself wanting to stick with it largely because of the people. Right. Um, the, the people I've met over these years and like the relationships I've kept have been absolutely life-changing for me. And, you know, I got married last year, a bunch of people at my wedding, you know, flew into my corner of Canada from all parts of the world. Uh, and these are people that I would have never known had it not been for my time in this industry. So like, I'm really passionate about it. Um, I want to give more than I'm taking right now. So I'm really just trying to like create stuff that I think will help grow the industry that again, will uh, reach new people that will draw people into it that will continue to help it grow. So I guess taking all that together and like back to your question around like five years from now, I still see myself helping to drive the industry forward in some capacity. Um, I mean, I'm 41 now, like I don't have the energy I did 10 years ago when I had my first startup. I can only reasonably assume in five years I'll have less energy than I have today. So I guess, you know, through that lens, like I want to stay involved. Um, I've been starting to do some advising to a couple industry startups, which has been something new for me, which has been really fulfilling and rewarding. And what I selfishly like about that is somebody that's like put his time in, like in the trenches, like really grinding hard. Um, you know, I see myself now being able to hopefully like impart a bit of 
my experience, my wisdom, my insights, whatever, uh, and help the next generation of entrepreneurs. Um, that's something I really see myself doing maybe a bit more of over time. Um, but I think five years from now, Pierre, like I'm finding this like sweet spot whereby I'll be in my mid forties. I'm still doing work in this industry. Maybe I'll be it on like a bit more of like a part-time basis, maybe like a little less publicly than I'm doing now with the podcast. Uh, but I'm still very much trying to drive it in my own way. Well, at the same time, trying to find a bit of balance in other areas of life. I mean, I live on uh, the West coast of Canada here on an Island, which is like a pretty remote place, but the most beautiful place for me. And part of the reason I'm here is like the lifestyle. It's, it's pretty chill. We're pretty relaxed. Nature's all around us. The mountains come down to the ocean. Like I love that. It, it's, it's my happy place. It's where I want to be and spending time in nature, whether like, you know, hiking in the mountains, uh, on the ocean fishing, like this is where I want to be. It's what brings me happiness. And I think in five years from now, if I can find a good equilibrium between like the things that make me happy outside of my professional ambitions and endeavors while still sort of having like my hand in, in, in the, in the pot a little bit, uh, you know, and really trying to continue to support the industry. However I can, like, that's, that's the next five years for me. It's a bit of a non-committal answer, but as I say, like, I'm really trying to get clear on that right now, just because I, I've had, a, you know, some major life changes over the last few months. And I, I, it's really reframing, I think my own view on like, what is important, um, where business fits into like the wider, you know, the wider part of my life, um, and kind of reconciling like my own ambition with, you know, the just being present and being here now and just being grateful for, for the current moment and sure. not worrying too much about like what the future will bring. So, uh, long ramble, the answer there, Pierre, but like, uh, I should probably worked on that one considering I ask everybody that, but, um, you know, that, that's it. Like, <laughs> I, I guess like, yeah, some, some semblance of work-life balance, but like still involved in the industry, maybe just a little less hands-on five years from now. Right, right, right. And so uh, what you are thinking about right now is a lot about purpose in general of life, like I'd imagine. It is. You I'm mentioned that it's being reframed. Yeah. Yeah. Not, like, not to get too existential about it all, but yeah, exactly that, like purpose, meaning, um, impact, uh, to some extent, thinking about legacy a little bit, like all of these things, which are big, big things. And I don't have answers for these yet, but now they're, they've been sort of thrust into the forefront of my mind and, and are things that I am now thinking about and then trying to map that to all of the, th like, the things in my ADD and like all these things I'm working on, trying to map all of that. And, and that will be the, the sort of challenge for me in the coming months here is to kind of integrate all of that together into a bit more of a cohesive answer to that question and, and then start working towards that for five years from now. Absolutely, Jesse. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast here, Jesse. And as I started the podcast as well, uh, it's been great to get to know you in general. Um, you, you are a fantastic person. And, and when I was introduced to you by our mutual friend, um, uh, Bendy Cherniak, he introduced us by saying how you are one of his favorite people that he ever met more or less on the, uh, I can, I can definitely see what, uh, what comes behind that. So, uh, again, Jesse, thank you so much for taking your time today. It's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today and I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, to follow up in the future with you as well. Yeah, Pierre, look, thanks for having me. And, uh, I can only reciprocate, uh, everything you just said, uh, you know, credit to, to you and, and your team for all of the good things that you are doing for the industry. And so far as the content, the thought leadership, the events, um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, you, you guys are doing some really special stuff. Uh, so I, you know, acknowledge you for that. And on a personal level, uh, as you say, like, I, I, I think there's a lot more for us to talk about as we go forward here together. So, um, you know, let's see what the future brings, but for now, Pierre, thank you so much for having me. Uh, if people are still listening to this, uh, an hour plus later, uh, <laughs> thanks for, thanks for, uh, bearing with us here, but it's been a great conversation, Pierre, and uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Thank you so much.